I think we've all been at a public event seeing the high-ranking officers with lots of awards. But is that really the way to do it? Let's talk about ranks and awards. Hey everybody, this is Chris here again with Lassa for another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. How are you doing today, Lassa? I am doing very fine, apart from the extremely hot weather. Well, that sounds brutal. Uh, that's my least favorite kind of weather. The weather here is nice. It's a beautiful uh, weekend day here in Massachusetts. Um, and I'm excited for our episode today because this was, uh, this was actually something that arose from a, a question... Uh, from one of the Patreons. But I guess before we launch into the episode, we should probably thank our patrons uh, for their support. Absolutely, because uh, as of yesterday, we actually uh, reached a $100 goal of ours a month from the patrons. And that is, uh, it's so awesome. And I'm so stoked about the entire thing. And we'd just like to thank you uh, so much to all of those who choose to support us financially it is uh, highly appreciated and it lets us uh, i think now is the point where we can start to evolve the podcast into something else or something better i suppose with the amount of uh, i suppose cash flow coming in you know we had i think a goal where if we got a hundred dollars a month we were going to invest some of that money into like infrastructure to make the podcast better yeah and uh, that may mean uh, a uh, another microphone for you so you can have uh, more guests over, but uh, with uh, with better audio, I suppose. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely have a big line of uh, guests that I want to have on the show. And that is very exciting. But before we, as you say, launch into the episode, I would just like to thank our patrons personally as well by uh, reading up their names in, uh, in, uh, in the first part of the episode, I suppose, rather than the last, as we usually do. I would like to thank all of the following persons, who are Wilhelm Duig, Daniel, Alexander, Vinny, Steve, Sean, Paul, Manuel, Juan, Gunter, Dustin, David, Corey, Casey, and Brian. Thank you so much to all of you. It is uh, it is fantastic. Yeah, thanks for your generosity, guys. All right, so what are we going to talk about today? Chris. Okay, so this is going to be a really fun episode, I think. We are going to talk about a controversial topic, which is rank and awards in reenactment. I think I've had uh, countless bitter arguments about this on the internet in the last 20 years. I definitely have made, uh, I think, enemies probably in all parts of the country and the world, most parts of the world anyway. Um, so before... I make enemies here on the podcast. I just want to remind everybody that the <laughs> opinions that I'm going to be expressing are just my opinions, and I'm not actually telling you how to live your life. You know, I'm going to say what I think about rank and awards, and I'm going to explain why I feel that way. And, uh, you know, if you want to use awards and rank for some other reenacting purpose, well, that's your call to make. You know, I only have, not, I only have as much power as you give me here, people. That's the reality. It is not uncommon on public events to see like uh, 
I don't know, a general and two senior officers leading a guy, uh, uh, two gift riders. I mean, that's kind of extreme, but... Yeah, I mean, I think the the fact is is that there's an issue with rank. Let's let, let's just start talking about rank. We can get into the awards part of this later, I think, um, with, with regard to rank and reenacting. So just for people out there who maybe are not like serious reenactors or are maybe not reenactors at all or just wondering about how this works. Um, there is no like universal system by which a reenactor achieves rank. There's not some kind of like rule where you see someone with a certain rank and you can assume that they have uh, some responsibilities or that they've done, they've been trained on stuff. It's not like the real military. Um, anybody can buy any rank that they want and 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 have that and if a, an event doesn't have set standards on ranks then they can just go show up at the event and they can be a general or they can be a, yeah. a lieutenant or whatever they want to be they can be a senior nco or whatever in my opinion the best way that uh reenactment takes place the safest and best way and i think i've talked about this a million times is the kind of unit structure where people come together they reenact as a group and that group sets and maintain standards, not only with what people wear, but also how people are trained and also what ranks people can have. And different units approach rank differently depending on what their impression is and the size of the unit and many other factors like that and the type of events that they go to. So, um, There's also the um, uh, different way of structuring rank within your unit as well that uh, really, really makes a big difference in it. There's endless variables in this in how people approach this. Um, and I guess I'm just going to come out and say at the outset that a reality is, is that in most reenactments that you go to, where there isn't a specific restriction on what ranks there are, and even, even a lot of events where these standards are set in place, you have a problem where you have too many high-ranking people for the number of low-ranking people that are there. There's too many officers, there's too many NCOs for the number of men present. And that's just a, a totally, I, I think it's a pretty universal problem that I feel like I see um, in a lot of different events. I see it at events that I go to, I see it at pictures from events that I didn't go to, that there's too many, uh, too many officers, too, uh, too many commanders, too many people in charge. Or as we say in America, too many chiefs and uh, not enough Indians. I suppose uh, most of our listeners have been at a public event and seen the big amount of officers. I remember the Gap event we've been mentioning before on this podcast where uh, I think there was a set limit of uh, rank positions and stuff, but still there were quite a large number of officers. Well, that's kind of what I mean where you, here's an event where at the at the beginning... Right. Originally, there was absolutely no restriction on officers at all. And like, you know, you would see, uh, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens of officers at this event. Later, they at least um, instituted a uh, some some rules about who could be an officer for the purposes of the event. Um, but even that, right, it was like, OK, well, if you're a unit commander of, of one of the units there, um, you can be an officer but your unit might show up with with 15 guys a unit with that showed up at that event with 20 guys showed up in pretty good numbers i mean there were some huge units but 20 20 guys is a serious uh part of the force but having an officer for a 20 guy unit um when you've got dozens of 20 guy units right then you have 
dozens of officers, and that's not realistic if you're trying to portray like a company-sized formation that would have had relatively few officers. And and even then, you could also, there was no way to say, all right, um, you can't just put on an officer uniform and just walk around the barracks area or go to the flea market or whatever, or just show up as an officer. And a lot of people just did that. You know, that was something that never really got controlled. So um, as a result, you just had, like you say, tons, tons of officers. Yeah. Um, too many in, in many settings. And I think that's the problem with the events who... Uh, mm, how do I word this without making enemies? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I suppose events where they allow individual reenactors outside of units without any sort of uh, rank system uh, also often means that you basically get a lot of uh, higher-ranking people because people just want to be officers, I suppose. Well, there's this, I don't know, this lingering thing where people who are in certain roles kind of need to be officers in reenactment and so i've seen it here where you'll have people that posture that okay we're going to do a, a hardcore authentic immersion you know campaigner style event or whatever it is and we're going to we're not going to be like those big events, those big Farby events that have too many officers or whatever. But then you go to the event and there's, you know, there's plenty of officers there. There's tons of NCOs and you've got officers in roles that wouldn't have been an officer. Or, um, you know, here, here's an example of something like, like, so when I used to go to the Gap, my the unit that I was kind of technically with at that time was a unit that was basically doing, I think it was, it was like a divisional headquarters type of a thing we were doing. And so we had a, a KSTN that was the kind of rubric by which uh, units were formed where it says, okay, these people in these roles have these specific ranks and so on. And we used that as, as kind of a guide. So everybody in the divisional command unit that I was in, um, had a rank that related to whatever role that they were playing that related to this KSTN, to this original historical document. So in that level, it was like, quote-unquote, realistic, right? Well, not really, because first of all, we're portraying a divisional headquarters in an event that has, it doesn't have the amount of men of a division, obviously. You know, and, and even if you look at the KSTN of a divisional headquarters, okay, well, we were portraying these roles, but there were many, many, many other roles, including lots of NCO and enlisted roles, that we just didn't have anybody portraying. So, um, you know, it, it, can, it can become really confusing and I think really complex and a, and a generally complex subject. The division we reenact usually is the 9th Panzer Division, and when it approached or when it arrived in the Normandy... Uh, should I say, um, the Normandy fighting area, it was, at that time, the Falais pocket was being formed. So the uh, unit, uh, the division was rushed into the Falais pocket and sub subsequently or uh, was um, more or less destroyed and had to be rebuilt. And we wanted to do an uh, event that was just after the Falais pocket. Um, and... My co-commander, Nicholas, he argued that since it's immediately after and the, you can basically uh, portray the entire division with just 200 men, 
he argued that most of those survivors would be higher-ranking officers because they were not in the front line. So therefore, to accurately portray the uh, the scenario, we would actually need more officers than men. See, that's you know a great example of how complex this subject is, where you can have situations where you have... Um, more officers than men, and it's totally realistic. I mean, there were some types of units where basically almost everybody was an officer or NCO. You know, maybe there was an enlisted guy as a messenger or a driver, but he he may not be, that may not be something that you even really need or would want to incorporate in the scenario that you're doing. Look, it, it has to be scenario dependent, right? It's uh, It's not something where you can really make a blanket statement that applies to every single reenactment and every single reenactment unit there are always going to be exceptions but you can make some generalities about it and you know one of the generalities that I think people would broadly agree with is that in general um, there's a problem with rank at in World War II reenactments where there are too many too many people in charge and um, you know I think we could talk about why that is a little bit yeah let's let's start off with a kind of an idea that I think a lot of reenactment units have where it's like, okay, we are going to use rank to denote the most experienced and the most dedicated members of the group. We are going to as people participate in more and more reenactments and gain an experience and and develop more skills, we are going to give them rank promotions as rewards to show their achievement, which is something that I think. Most people listening to this are probably thinking, well, that, that's reasonable and that makes sense. But the reality of it is, is that in your average reenactment group, you're going to have a core of guys. This is, in most groups that I know, you have a core of guys who show up to almost everything. They're the most hardcore in terms of like their attitude about getting to the event. Right? They're fo- hyper-focused on going to the event. They're, they're doing the research. They're from day to day. They're improving their kit. They're, they're spending the money and everything. Maybe they buy a vehicle or something. And those guys are going to be the guys who are going to get the higher rank. And then you have this other kind of part of the group, which is kind of like you know, less reliable members, maybe kind of trending towards even some fringe members. You're, you're going to see people who, who come out once a, once a year, right? Some, some people, they love going to one event, and that's the event that they do, and they're just not going to go to any other events. Or um, maybe they want to go to a lot of events, but the guy's got a, a whole bunch of kids, or he works every weekend, you know, so, or he's got some health issues or whatever it is. So his, his actual field time is going to be limited. And what you have then is you have the guys who are always there have like a high rank. And then the fringe guys who don't really show up, those guys are the low-ranking guys. So if you had every single guy in the unit at the event, maybe it would be a, a realistic distribution of rank. But that never happens. So for a lot of events, like events that are not like maximum effort events that are just kind of like, you know, maybe sort of mediocre events, you're only going to get the high-ranking people that go. And that's how you get these units where they, they fall in and it's like two officers and... Uh, and three senior NCOs and a sergeant and like maybe one enlisted guy or maybe no enlisted guys. And that's not a realistic distribution when you're basically portraying an infantry squad that would have been enlisted men led by like an Unteroffizier. I remember back when I started uh, the unit, uh, this is basically the trap we went, uh, we walked right into. 
I I suppose we didn't promote people beyond the rank of uh, Obergefighter. So we didn't have like 2,000 officers and a million NCOs. But we found that we basically would have only people, like only the active people would show up at events. And those are the ones that got the the uh, the ranks and that that was a uh, that was a trap we walked right into so we had to uh, we had to adjust our rank policy uh from there on well that that's a tough thing to do i'm i'm glad you guys were able to do that because i can tell you from experience that a lot of people in reenactment take these when you use the promotions as a reward to denote somebody's achievement people put value in that in that rank they're like look i earned this and then if you go to take that away from them because it's not realistic, some people really don't like that. And I don't necessarily blame them because if you've, if you've, it's tough to make a transition from, okay, you earned this thing that is like a reward for your service to the group for your contributions to our team project, but we're not going to assign value to this thing anymore. So we're just going to take this away from you and like replace it with nothing. And you know, some people really don't like that. Yeah, and I mean, we didn't really have a problem with that because it was uh, within the unit. It was kind of like uh, everybody agreed that it was uh, starting to get somewhat silly, and we should uh, fix it. So we didn't really have that issue, thankfully. But I I can see the issue, and I do know that a lot of units. Uh, uh, I also I I know that some units uh, who portray units that use uh, cuff titles also use the cuff title as a as like yeah, one of the big awards being accepted into the unit and such and I don't really know about it. What does rank really mean in reenactment? And the, it's a very bitter pill I think to swallow for some people. But the reality is is that it actually doesn't mean anything at all. It's just a fake thing. It's like anybody, I could go buy a, a general's uniform right now and go to a reenactment as a general, but does that mean anything? It absolutely doesn't. It's just, I didn't earn it. It's, I just bought it. Like, there is no Wehrmacht anymore. You know what I mean? Like, this stuff isn't real. So, like, you know, I go to events. I usually go as an Obergefreiter. Sometimes I go as a Schütze, the lowest enlisted rank. Is, does that mean that I don't have any experience in reenacting? Does that mean that the fact that, you know, I've done the stuff that I've done in reenactment or that I'm a unit commander doesn't mean anything? No, it doesn't. Of course not. You know, what reenactment is like its own thing and the rank is just it's just part of your impression it's just something that you choose for your impression it's not really like you know it's just i don't know i, I people get so worked up over this subject <laughs> and i'm almost like tripping over my own words here because i don't want to piss somebody off because there are a lot of people out there like you know i've worked my way up i started as the lowest enlisted rank and i became a sergeant and a squad leader and now i'm a lieutenant and it's like okay i'm i respect your you know growth as a reenactor and for those people who are portraying officers who have the skills to lead men and who are really leading men i respect that tremendously and i myself have portrayed an officer at an event you know event specific role um at the Fort Indian Town Gap event, where it was kind of required that I do that for the role that I was in. So it's not like I'm saying nobody should be an officer. I'm also not saying that if you're an officer and you're leading men and your rank fits with that role, that, that, that I don't respect that role or that that role isn't valuable or important. We need people like that. You know, I respect that tremendously, in fact. But, you know, you just, you just, 
rank really kind of needs to be looked at independently from that. It needs to be looked at as a part of your impression, no different from what hat or type of boots that you choose. You know, the rank has to be something that fits your impression and goes along with that. Yeah, the, it, it has to fit the impression and it has to fit the role you are doing in the squad. If you're the squad leader, then you should have the NCO rank. If you are the machine gunner, you should not have the NCO rank. And it's really that simple. There are a lot of people out there who've been reenacting for a real, real long time and who have who probably have a knowledge base and a skill set that might even enable them to like have been really, you know, I don't know, officers in like a real Wehrmacht if they went back in time and lived different lives or something, right? In some kind of bizarre fantasy scenario. But the <laughs> the like if you are portraying the leader of a 10-man section you should really be portraying like an unteroffizier. You know, you should be portraying a sergeant because that is the rank that would be leading that size of an element. You know, so just because you have have the skills doesn't necessarily mean that that should or would translate into um, into the, the rank. And I think there was, that was probably the case, probably in the real Wehrmacht, where... You know, maybe you were super skilled and you would be promoted, but there just wasn't a uh, a slot for you. It, there wasn't a role for you to fill that would require the higher rank. So you just kind of were, you stayed in the role that you were in and you had the rank that went with that role. Yeah. I often think back to something that a veteran told me that I think I've mentioned here on this podcast before, where he said, that we had too many Oberschütze in our unit and that we didn't have enough Gefreiter and that he thought that it would be totally realistic to have an entire squad of Gefreiter led by a Gefreiter as the squad leader because there were so many people with that rank in regular combat infantry type units um, and obviously that isn't how it was supposed to have been but that was something that he saw and something that he thought even would be correct. So I thought, okay, so we're going to have... Uh, you know, I'll be in charge of the group, and to denote that, my rank will be Obergefreiter, which is, I guess, the highest enlisted rank before you get into the NCO ranks. Um, and then in our group, once you have the complete kit, everything that we require our members to own so that they can participate in these events, once you've made all these purchases, then you can submit that kit to be inspected by the group, and we will look at it. And if your kit meets our standards and is satisfactory, you then uh, can portray a Gefreiter. And everybody in the group who hasn't yet done this kit inspection thing or maybe still needs to buy some stuff, they are a Schutze, which is the lowest enlisted rank. So at a bunch of events, we'll have me there as an Obergefreiter and everybody else as a Gefreiter, or um, sometimes if the event calls for it, I'll even go as a lower rank. Um, and then other times events, we have we have kind of the guys come who don't come very much and are still working on their kits, and so we'll have some, some shits in there. Um, and I think that's a totally realistic rank distribution for what we are trying to do. I'm proud of that rank distribution. I see it reflected in original photographs all the time. Um, you know, if you look at the KSTN for the unit type that we portray and then think about what, what it is that we're actually doing, that's the right rank. So that, I feel like it's a success for us, the way we're doing it now. Yeah, that does sound, uh, I never thought of it that way, but that actually sounds good because you still have, 
I suppose you still have some level of requirement for the Gefreiterler rank, so it m- makes people strive for it and still be kind of proud to have the rank as well, but more in the way of being accepted in the unit than having the uh, being proud of just having the rank, I suppose. Yeah, it's an achievement. You know, I'm, I feel proud for somebody when I tell them that they can buy that chevron and put it on their uniform. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, because it is our the, the there's a whole bunch of stuff that you have to buy and um, you know it's it's expensive and you have to buy it from different places so, and some we have guys who've been in my unit for a long time who haven't achieved the gefreiter rank um, and that's okay you know like for example um, we have a we have some guys who, like, we, we don't have a lot of events in the summertime. And most of the events that happen in the summertime happen in, like, a kind of a relatively narrow geographic region. It's like, we will travel hours away to do events, but for whatever reason, in the summertime, most of the events are, they're distant for some of the guys. And there are some guys who don't really make it to summer events and don't usually make it to events in this geographic region. And so those guys haven't bought the like HBT uniform and uh and because they've never had to they've never gone to an event at which they needed this this like work uniform that we often wear in in hot weather and maybe if they wanted to go to the event that was going to be in the summertime where we require people to wear this work fatigue type uniform they would buy it but that's never happened and so they've just never bought it. They've never gotten the Gefreiter rank, and that's that's okay. I mean, I think that they're. I still regard those people as important, valuable members of the group. Um, but on the other token, when someone is shows that they have the dedication and that they sort of have the desire to be as many events as they can and get everything that they need to go to every type of event, to go to every event that we do, that that's also meaningful. And I I'm glad that I'm able to use the gefreiter sort of signifier that they've uh, that they've done this i think that sounds uh, really brilliant but do you will you keep promoting people up to the rank of obergefreiter as well or how do you how do you tackle that gefreiter is it it's your final rank promotion you're never going to go up you know i portray an obergefreiter and i will never i will never go up in rank unless some unprecedented thing happened where we suddenly ballooned in size and we were having 30 plus people at every event, then we would need to look at it and be like, all right, well, you know, we're going to have to, we've got like multiple squad size elements here and now we need to fill these roles with appropriate ranks. But I don't think that's ever going to happen in my group. Even if we had 20 guys showing up in an event, I think 20 Gefreiter and one Obergefreiter would be totally fine. Even if you're going to portray a... uh a platoon leader, a Zugführer, you can still do that as the NCO rank, just a more senior NCO, uh, according to uh, KSTNs. So you you really have to, like you can, you can really be a lot, a lot, a lot of people by just being an, uh, an NCO. Yeah, I mean, in theory, it was more common for NCOs to be the Zugführer even than an officer, because the, the, Führer of the first Zug was an officer, but then you had second and third Zug in each company, and those were led by an NCO. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's some ex- exceptions to that. Uh, we discovered in the 
in the Panzer KSTM that actually the first and the second uh, platoons are led by officers and only the third is led by an NCO. Wow, that's cool. That's super interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's a good example of how like a unit specific, you know, unit type specific KSTN can really help to dial into the details of a specific impression. Yeah. So there you would have the Kompaniführer, the company uh, uh, leader, and the platoon leader of the first and second platoon being officers, and only the third being a lower rank. So very officer heavy. Yeah, that actually makes sense in a way, right? Where you had, at the time, you had uh, officers who were in charge of, like, armored vehicle crews, right? So, like, you know, like we've said earlier, there were units that were much rank heavier than, than other unit types, so... Uh, it's not necessarily ever going to be a one-size-fits-all. Yeah, usually it is the uh, first platoon is led by an officer and the two others are led by uh, NCOs, but there, there's some exceptions here and there, so do your research. It's just it's just hard to avoid that using rank as, uh, as like a reward. Um, but when you do use rank promotions as a reward and you continue to promote people, it's just eventually you're just going to have a, a rank heavy unit. I see it. I see it all the time. There's just no way around it. That's, you know, somebody might uh, hear this and think, OK, well, my unit does that. And, uh, you know, we, we have uh, 100 guys that show up at an event and, um, you know, it's it all works out perfectly for us, and it's like okay, I, I don't I don't doubt that such a thing could happen. I've never seen it, and I think more I, what I have seen is the opposite, where you've got these units where they're showing up with a squad size or less, and everybody is an NCO or senior enlisted, and there's no low ranking members. Especially, look, I don't know if units are they don't recruit in a constant way. Most units, like. That is to say, when I think back about reenactment over time, I have watched waves of recruits get involved with World War II reenacting because of specific things that happened. Like, um, you know, Saving Private Ryan was like a huge boost for World War II reenacting in the 90s. And then Band of Brothers in like the late 90s brought a lot of people into reenactment and stuff. And uh, But then there are other times in between where like I think about 2008 when we had the economic kind of crash here there were very very few people getting involved at that time so it's not like you can really rely on a constant steady stream of new recruits to your group you might have one year where your group grows in size by 20 percent you might have another year where your group numbers stay the same or even decline um so you, ju you just can't count on having an endless stream of new recruits to be portraying the lowest ranking guys you need some you need some guys to portray enlisted guys and sometimes they have to be experienced reenactors it's just how it is yeah i mean what i've noticed over the time is that our unit uh, unit's membership numbers basically stay the same but we have some people who leave and new guys come in that's how it's worked for us too but don't forget we're like on a small scale i mean i've seen units that had 300 guys on the roster go to fielding 10 or 20 guys because you know it's it's part of the it's like a unit culture thing you know some units are like a like a big tent that's just takes in all kinds of reenactors who are looking for a home and other units are a small close-knit group of friends um so it's, it's not going to be the same for every unit but but what you're saying about the unit staying the same size that's how it has been with my unit we've been a unit i think for six years now and we had um eight guys at our first event that we ever did and at the next event that we have on our schedule 
we have, I think, eight guys on the list to go. But only three of those guys were at the first event. You know what I mean? Most of the guys who were at the first event aren't in the unit anymore. And most of the people who are going to events now weren't in the unit when we started six years ago. So, um, I mean, I remember one time specifically we did an event that was an event we did in October. And we had eight people in attendance. And then at the next event, the next year, that same event came around again. And we had eight people attend again. But only one of those people was a guy who had been in the previous group of eight people. <laughs> you know? it's, it's yeah. and it, it, Six years is not a long time. We've had like a shocking amount of turnover, which maybe is like a, a problem, right? Maybe something that I should look at why we don't retain people better or whatever. But... I don't know. I think about that. You know, you think, okay, well, you should be able to retain people. But then when you look at the individual cases, I think of guys who left the unit, it's like, all right, well, this guy, you know, his, his health declined. This guy moved away. This guy transitioned to doing a different time period that suited his interests better. You know, and it's like, okay, well, which one of these guys was the guy that I was supposed to retain? You know, it's not, it's not really how it works. I suppose I can also touch on how we do uh, ranks. Yeah. Um, and as I said, we we used to have that uh, you earn your rank and you rank up and stuff, but only to the roof of like an Oberkefreiter. But as we change to a new policy, what what happens is that when you get uh, uh, recruited, you have the rank of recruit, but it basically means shoots in the impression form. And then when you come to event and you've shown how you're at events and stuff and you and we accept you fully into the unit and this also goes with the organization we're under as well because there's some legal stuff there but only when we recruit them to a Schutze or a Panzergrenadier uh, we allow them fully within the unit and then we will rank them up to Gefreider as you say but we kind of stop there um, and we and we have some select few people in the unit who are more experienced should i say who we will say like can you be an nco this weekend or can you be an obergefreiter this weekend so they're flexible and that's more or less how we do it yeah that flexibility is really key you know some people really they really focus on their rank as if it's a part of their personality and i think the best way to do it is like what you say to be flexible to think, okay, well, at this event, we're going to have a lot of people going, and you're going to be in charge of a section, so you're going to be this rank. And then four weeks later, we have another event. We only have six people going, and so you are going to be just removing the rank completely. You know, and, and people should be okay with that. Like I say, it's just an, it's part of the impression. It's part of what you're presenting as a vignette of World War II. It's not like something... It's just, it's just not really something that you earned or achieved. Nobody can be even a Schutze anymore. We talk about, some people talk about earning, you know, you've earned your rank. No one really, like in World War II, you had to be in the army to wear the uniform. You know, you, you couldn't just buy it. You had to earn it in a sense, right? You had to participate in training and be a member of the armed forces and everything that went along with that. We're not, we're not doing any of that stuff. Nobody's earned any of this stuff. And so it's just, it should be looked at as part of your impression. That's what I think. Yeah. And on that note, I guess we can transition into talking about awards, which is a very similar topic for me personally. Yeah, because it's important to have uh, strict rules on how to receive the award, right? So not everybody has all the awards. As, as I think most people are aware, so the Germans, 
kind of unlike the Americans, they wore basically all of their awards and decorations on their combat uniform. So to, you know, to not have any awards at all in a combat unit in a lot of cases probably wouldn't be correct because if you're portraying a unit that has been in combat that has participated in battles it's most likely that at least some of the members of the unit would have received decorations for these battles or just the campaigns that the unit fought in even even if they didn't personally uh, participate really in any combat and so those are aspects of an impression that have to be incorporated for visual realism for you know for the purposes of realism uh, the other side of this coin though is that you know, I think there's a problem in reenactment where people wear too many awards. I see a lot of people doing NCO and officer impressions, and they're covered with awards. And you look at this person, and it's just it's just not convincing. You know, I I know a lot of reenactors who are in their 50s or 60s that know way more about World War II than I did. They've been reenacting since before I was born, and they are people that taught me a lot about reenacting, and I hold them in tremendous esteem. But when I see somebody like that wearing a close combat clasp in gold, right? Like they've done, I don't know, what is 60 days of hand-to-hand combat against the enemy, (laughs) right? And it's like, frankly, an out-of-shape, you know, 55-year-old father of three, you know, who looks, who has a desk job. It's just like, this is just not believable, you know, straight up not believable. I think there are two ways that you get these not believable distributions of awards. And the first way is not to repeat myself too much, but it's exactly the same way that it is with the um, with the rank, where you're like, okay, well, you go to 15 events, you get the Iron Cross second class, you're going to go to 30 events, you get the Iron Cross first class, you go to 60 events, you get the close combat clasp, and so on and so forth. Well, after a couple of years or three years of reenactment events, all the guys who go to every event are going to have every award. And so when you have smaller events where only the guys who are always there show up, everybody in your unit is going to have every award and it looks totally silly. And the other way, the other main way that I think this happens is by not having any standards at all or basically this is something that mostly affects people who aren't even a member of a group. They just put together an impression and they go to an event um, and they think, okay, well, I want my uniform to look cool, so I'm going to get the iron, all the iron crosses and the, all the different combat badges. And I was also on a U-boat, um, you know, and I was a flak gunner, too. I was in the Luftwaffe, too, right? And they have the whole chest. It's just totally ridiculous. I mean, there were guys. There were guys like that in World War II. There were people who... Um, I mean, look, I've seen it all. You know, the sniper, the sniper stuff, stuff that... People, I think sometimes they don't even really think about when these things were awarded, when they were instituted. Some of these awards came about rather late in the war, you know, so you've got guys wearing an anti-partisan badge, which only existed late in the war, and it's the wrong period of the war, or I don't know. And and this kind of broaches onto this whole broader subject of like this kind of stolen valor concept that we have in America, where it's like, is it even like ethical to be portraying some guy who was taking out uh, tanks with handheld weapons and who got the Knight's Cross, you know, the highest valor award. Is it even ethical to put that stuff on? I mean, I know, obviously I am aware that 
no matter how much I read, no matter how much I study, I'm never going to know what it was like even just to be a rear area guy who served in a training unit and was trained by the Wehrmacht, went through basic training and then got um, got out of it because he was he had illness or something, right? Like even that much, I'll never really know. I'll never know what it felt like to be a civilian in Germany during World War II. I'll never really know what it was like to do any of these things, but I definitely know that I will never know what it was like to take out a tank with a hand grenade. You know, I, I will never know what it was like to do these unbelievably brave acts in combat in World War II against the Red Army or whatever it is. You know, face off against T-34 tanks. Like, that's so far removed from my life and, and from everybody's life. You know, I know there are a lot of guys in reenactment who are veterans who participated in battles for their respective nations' militaries, and maybe they even had their own heroic exploits and were awarded for bravery in World War II. I mean, awarded for bravery in the modern wars in which they fought. And that's an achievement that I respect, that bravery, you know, is is great, and I applaud that, but it's different from being in World War II as well. Um, so I just, I don't, personally, I think, I think people should be asking themselves if it's even ethical to wear some of these decorations that I see people having. I suppose continuing on that, um, how does your unit uh, tackle awards? Okay, well, we made a list of the most... So basically, uh, you know, I don't think it would be realistic for us to not have any awards. If you, So we portray a rear area security unit, but a lot of those guys had um, awards for their service. There was like the War Merit Cross, which was... A super common award I once read, and I actually have to look this up and verify this. I did read once that 60% of all soldiers in the Wehrmacht had the War Merit Cross, making it an unbelievably, you know, widely awarded medal. Um, and a lot of guys got the wound badge, They or maybe they had previously been in an, in an infantry unit and been wounded in combat and got this wound badge, which you could also get for getting frostbite. There were a lot of different ways that you could get this badge. And so... Um, and there are other examples like campaign awards, the, uh, the Eastern Front Medal that was awarded to millions of soldiers who fought in the winter of 1941 and 1942 on the Eastern Front. Also, the Westfall Medal that was awarded to people who were in units that were stationed mostly doing static defense on the French border in like 1939, uh, 1940. And so we made a list of also these the awards Africa that are very Cup common. Also, the Africa Cup title, I suppose, is a campaign award. A cuff title can be a campaign award. Yeah, sure. I mean, we, um, and in some units, it would be it would be appropriate. You know, if a unit was made out of people who had previously been members of the Africa Corps, right? They might be wearing the Africa Award cuff title. That might be correct for that. But for our unit, um, it, that wouldn't be correct. So we made a list of the most, I think, the most common awards that would be in the type of unit that we portray, and then we tell all members once you reach the rank of Gefreiter. Once you have fulfilled all of the requirements that we ask of you, once you basically have bought all of this stuff on the shopping list, then if you choose, you can wear one award from this list of most common awards. But you have to think about it and you have to be able to explain how this award fits in with your impression, fits in with your persona. You know, that's the demand that we make. And most people in the group choose not to wear any awards. Some, you know, one guy wears a... A war merit cross. One guy wears uh, a wound badge, and I think it has a totally 
realistic look. You know, a bunch of people without awards and, you know, maybe a smattering of very common awards here and there is totally the look that I want to have for the basically rear area unit that we portray. Um, if we were portraying a combat infantry unit, I would probably have different standards. You know, I, I would, I think it would be uh, reasonable to have more awards, but we don't, you know. And the unit that I used to be in, we initially used awards to reward participation at events. It was like what I said before, you know, if you participate in this amount of tacticals where there's a battle, you know, you get the infantry assault badge. If you participate in 125 events of any kind, you get the close combat class. But it wound up being, uh, it wound up being too much, you know. Wound up being too many, too many people with too many awards, too many people with just pockets full of awards and long ribbon bars, and uh, being all the people that showed up at, at events some of the time. What about you guys? How do you do awards? Even in awards, as it ranks, we walked into the uh, big old trap of having uh, criterias for them that you had to fulfill. We also went into the trap that we should put the criteria is really high so not everybody has all the awards and that ended up with uh, more or less nobody having any awards uh, so it was a year or two ago we decided to change it so that the unit's leader can more freely award uh, awards to people but we really haven't started doing that so we still struggle with not having enough awards on the guys because we're a frontline unit so it would be typical to see at least um, a couple of guys with an award or two but we're still not there so we're still it's still something we're working on uh, it's just going really slow because we have a million other stuff to do as well but I do kind of like that you're you have a list basically where people can just choose freely from it and yeah I, I think it's, it was a really big issue that um we put the criteria so high that nobody ever got any. I, I don't think that's a good thing. I saw one unit, uh, this is just one example of that unit, was that they award the Knight's Cross to members, but the criteria is something like you have to be in the unit for 15 years and recruit 15 people who each get uh, served in the unit at least three years or something like that. And it was just like insane. But then again, it's the Knight's Cross, but um, it's just so, it's, I just found that kind of weird. I mean, that's an amazing achievement that's worthy of some kind of reward. Personally, you know, I don't, I don't know this particular unit, but I don't really think people should be wearing the Knight's Cross, you know? No, I um, agree. And I think that, what do you need tried with those insane criterias? But then I'm like, why even list it? And wouldn't it be better to just not list it? And if somebody absolutely managed to do those crazy criterias, you give them a night's cross, I suppose. Well, the question then becomes, how do you reward um, a outstanding achievement in your reenactment group? If it's not with rank and awards, then how... You know what is the reward? What is the motivating factor? And that's something that I don't necessarily have a great answer. But why should there be for. any award for it? Because you're doing a you're doing a action of bravery in a fictional scenario where you're basically going to go to McDonald's a couple of hours later. Well, even like let's say in theory you've got a member who he shows up at every event. He's recruited five new people in the last two years to join your unit. He has bought a tank 
and is taking it to events. You know, this this guy has changed the face of your reenactment group. And for the better, you know, he's making it more fun for everybody. There is a natural desire to give this guy some kind of indication that you really appreciate what he's done. And a lot of units tend to think about using rank and awards for this purpose. And I don't think that that's a, a good strategy, you know. But what, what is a good strategy? you gotta, yeah. you got to thank this guy somehow. So is it enough just to shake his hand and say thank you? Is it enough that the people in the group... Um, show their appreciation somehow. Just say, hey, man, thanks for getting that tank. I just pointed out very early in the unit that if people buy something awesome for the unit, that is really cool, but we should not award that in that kind of sense because then we're basically awarding people with money and they can basically buy themselves into the unit and I didn't really want that to happen. I think there's uh, other ways to yeah. to say thank you or something that... Uh, we had a photographer who often joined us and took some really good pictures of us. Um, but And uh, we basically thanked him by getting him a gift card at a uh, at a photography shop for, I think, $200 or something. Nice. And I think something like that is better than giving them a rank or something. Because the rank and award is basically, it doesn't matter. It's it's all make believe, but give them something real, like buy them an experience. I don't know, cinema tickets, a rafting course, whatever. I think that's more. I think that shows more appreciation as well than a fake piece of metal on your on his chest. I agree. I think it should. I've I've thought about doing stuff like that too. Like you could even just have a, a ceremony at an event, have a formation, and just award somebody with. Uh, I don't know, a plaque or something like that. Something that happened in the real Wehrmacht. If you were the victor of a, a sports competition or something, you could get some kind of decorative object. Or, you know, on another level, though, I kind of just think this stuff has to be its own reward. That's what we really do in my group. Do it because you want to. You know, what's the motivator? The motivator is that it's fun. The people are your friends. You like reenacting. You like having a good time. You like when your friends are having a good time at the reenactment. You know, that should be the motivation. If I have to dangle awards and rank over people to get them to go to the event, well, they shouldn't go. Or we shouldn't go to the event. You know, we sh maybe we shouldn't be doing the event if nobody wants to go unless they get a medal out of it, right? It's like the going to the event is the reward, I think. Yeah, exactly. It should be the reward anyway. Uh, when it comes to the photographer, we actually had a ceremony at an event he was photographing, and uh, then I was the higher-ranking uh, guy in charge of the ceremony, so I actually just called him up to me. And he was like, uh, what? And he walked up and he got a gift card, and he really loved that. That's really nice. It's cool that it was a surprise, too. That's another thing where if you if the rewards are automatic, built in, people know that they're up for the award, but if you just kind of spontaneously commemorate people's achievements, it feels more meaningful, I think. The look on his face is worth it. <laughs> As said, it's it's uh, the motivator is the fun, and the fun is seeing them being surprised getting a medal. I mean, there's so many ways to do it, but I agree with you that uh, you shouldn't really have any set uh, criteria for it. You sh it's basically your unit impression, and if your unit impression should have people having medals, then people should have medals, regardless if they've earned it or not, because it's it's the is impression of the unit. One other thing I wanted to just touch on, and this is like so contentious, and I've been raked over the coals 
for this is, you know, the units that do their awards by giving people equivalents to what they earned in the real modern military. Um, and that just creates an, it, every time I see it, it just creates a, a look that's not realistic, you know, because there is, the equivalents don't really exist. The, it's just a, like a, you know, the rank, not, nothing about it is correct or can be reconciled with how it was done in World War II. You're trying to take this, you know, modern military experience and then convey that back to World War II, and that's not an exact equivalent, and so you wind up having uh, authenticity compromises as a result. You know, and that's not to detract from people's achievements in the real military at all. I just don't think that that you can make that apply to World War II as like a one-to-one comparison. It's just not possible. Or I've never seen it done right, never seen it done in a way that looked real. I'll say that much. Uh, I touched on that on the Q&A as well, that uh, I wrote on my unit's uh, guideline that rank is based on uh, on how good you are, uh, how competent you are. And one guy took that as how competent you are in having the rank in the real world because he held a certain rank in the real world and he wanted that in reenactment because he was competent on the rank but that was not what I meant with being competent in the rank because I meant that you know what the rank entails in the World War II era. I'll be arguing about this with people until the end of time. You know, there is... uh, Look, fair uh, disclosure here to everybody listening, I have never served in any armed force uh, in my life. So, you know, I don't really know what it's like to be in the military. But I do know a a bunch of stuff about World War II because I've studied it for a long time. And, you know, it seems to me like service in the modern all-volunteer military of the 21st century is not the same as uh, being a conscript uh, in a uh, an army of a totalitarian fascist regime on a total war footing during a world war situation. You know, the, the differences there are huge. Some people who have been in the military have told me that soldiering is this universal thing and that any soldier of any army or era can relate to the experiences of any other. And I, I don't really see it. I don't think that... Um, German soldiers thought they were the same as the soldiers in the armies that they opposed in World War II. When I read memoirs, it's like soldiers from Prussia thought that they were different from soldiers <laughs> yeah. from Bavaria. The proud you know, never mind guys. the, you know what I mean? And like, um, you never mind the Russian guys or the, you know, they saw differences between the Russian soldiers and American soldiers. So they didn't seem to think that, you know, whether a guy was a, a Bavarian or a, a from Saxon or Russian or, or French or American soldier, that all these things were the same. They didn't seem to have that attitude. And I mean, it's like, what is, you know, are you telling me that being a, uh, being a soldier in uh, Iraq is the same as uh, being in the the Battle of Hastings in 1066 AD or whatever, I don't think it was right. I think these things were different experiences. Um, you know, pe- some people don't, some people disagree, and we're just going to have to agree to disagree on that. And um, you know, the, of course, some people will be like, "Well, uh, you know, when you're a soldier, you know what it is to like uh, try to shirk duty or to try to like, or or to be cold or to be tired or whatever." And it's like, I don't know. I think there are a lot of 
people who work fishing for crabs in Alaska who know what it is to be cold, <laughs> right? It's like these things aren't specific to military or even to people in combat. Some of these things, I mean, there are a lot of hunger. There are people who die of starvation every year in this world who never set foot on a battlefield or wore a uniform. They, they definitely knew hunger. I think there are some things that are... Uh, universal to the human experience right like having a sense of humor having inside jokes with your friends or like half you have to get along with a boss you don't like or have to have co-workers you don't like or whatever these things aren't unique to the military yeah so. <laughs> that that's just that it's not unique to the military part of the problem is is that the the awards sometimes people i think are surprised to look at these awards and find out how few of them were awarded or when they were instituted. Like, I've seen units where they use the anti-partisan badge as some kind of equivalent to some kind of modern military thing, like if you were in Iraq or Afghanistan fighting against insurgents, they'll give you the anti-partisan badge. The badge was awarded in really small numbers. No, it's... That doesn't sound right. I mean, first of all, that badge was only awarded to certain units, certain unit types for certain actions. It was instituted very late in World War II, and it was awarded only in very small numbers. There are like... I think less than a dozen known extant original photographs of this badge in where, and you, when you were portraying an infantry, you know, unit in Normandy, and you've got three guys in your squad with the anti-partisan badge, that's just, you might as well be wearing, uh, I mean, you might as well be just wearing some kind of modern pin that says, uh, you know, kiss me, I don't smoke, right? I mean, it's totally wrong. It's just wrong. Or they'll use uh, the Africa Cuff title to, <laughs> yeah. to, for people who did service in the Middle East. And they're, so they're in a unit where, and they're maybe they got the lowest enlisted rank. Um, and they're in a unit that is supposedly portraying 1944. And then you've got this guy who's got basically this campaign award for an, a campaign that ended, you know, years before. And yet somehow he's, he's, he went to Africa and, you know, did battle there or whatever, but never got a rank promotion. It's like, what the heck is going on with this impression? It looks terrible. Because it's just, it's just wrong, you know? Yeah. And that goes, that kind of reflects the unit impression too. When we did the event in Belgium, we had the uh, we had a uh, guy from Switzerland with us. Yeah, he was uh, following in my squad. Um, and before the event, he asked me if he could wear some awards, and I said, "Well, sure. It would only be appropriate that you wore in a kind of award." And he asked me about the idea of having like a flak badge, and that's the only thing he had. Uh, as his, as like his guy was uh, serving on a flak battery bef- before getting, uh, I suppose, switched to a more uh, frontline unit. And I said, well, that would be a cool touch. And to be honest, I can't remember which award he wore, if he wore that or a regular uh, assault badge, because it really doesn't matter. And it's a very small detail. And I had a lot of other things to think about than that. But I think uh, those kind of stuff really add like the exotic flavor of stuff as well. The uh, the flak badge is one of the ones that uh, is on our list that would theoretically be allowable. If somebody wants to do an impression where they served previously in a, like a Luftwaffe flak unit and then got transferred to the army and wound up being in an army... Uh, rear area security unit that's totally plausible 
That was that's something that happened as uh, people shifted around and transferred, and as manpower needs changed. Yeah, because they didn't get new awards that reflected the the current unit. Right. Um, you know, but then again, I think it would probably be in my unit. It would be totally unrealistic for someone to have like a, a badge for their Luftwaffe service and like an assault badge for um, their infantry service or whatever. It's just like. Um, that, and then a separate one for the tank service. Yeah, totally. It becomes like it becomes too much of a stretch. It becomes implausible. There were people who had stuff like that in World War II. It's not impossible. It's not plausible. I don't think it's d- definitely not typical, and it's not something that I think would add visual authenticity to what we do. But we like. I'll give you another example. Is uh, we we'll, we would allow, and no one actually wears these awards. This is like theoretical but no one nobody yet has actually done any of this stuff but if someone told me that they wanted to wear a Kriegsmarine badge from maybe service in the merchant marine or service on a on a Kriegsmarine ship prior to transferring into the army that would be okay that's totally um plausible but i wouldn't let somebody wear for example the u-boat badge because the U-boat crews, they were volunteers, and that was kind of regarded as an elite thing, and that the way that that award was regarded was a little bit different than, for example, like, I don't know, the High Seas Fleet Badge or something, right? So, or the... Uh, yeah, and the um, U-boat crews rarely got transferred exactly. out of U-boat. Yeah, so that's like a, just a hard no, you know? So it's like, okay, if you... If we had a theoretical recruit who was a sailor who really like knew a lot about life on the sea and wanted to portray someone who had served on a Kriegsmarine surface vessel and then later on transferred to the army and wound up in a uh, rear area security unit, maybe for, you know, there's a lot of different ways that something like that could happen. I would be fine with it. Um, but the U-boat badge would be, would be a no. Yeah, especially if you, uh, you portray like 1941 and 1942. So I think a very nice touch would be one to have a Kriegsmarine badge, but also a Narvik uh, shield on his upper arm because uh, the Kriegsmarine lost uh, half of their destroyer fleet in Narvik sure. in 1940. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting sometimes to look at even some of these. Like I say, sometimes the numbers in which these things were awarded were shocking. I mean, there are... You know, there are examples that were, I think, there were types of awards that were maybe more common than what we what we use, what we portray, and then there are other stuff that's, like, way less common. You know, in my first reenactment group, we used the War Merit Cross to, like, award people for service to the group, and if you, part, you know, did something great, if you recruited people and, you know, donated money, uh, donated your time to fix the vehicles or whatever, you could get the War Merit Cross second class, and then if you went above and beyond that, we would give people the War Merit Cross first class. Totally makes sense. You know what I mean? The second class, and then you get the first class, and lots of guys had the second class, so why not the first class? But come to find out, the War Merit Cross first class was, like, really rare in, in a lot of types of units. Huh. Um, you know, tr- try to find pictures of it in use. It's, like, not there. I mean, the, the award numbers are shockingly low. I mean, it was still awarded a lot of times, um, but a lot of the people who got it were, like, you know, people who, I don't know, officers at, at, you know, weapons testing facilities who designed new weapon types or like stuff that really is not the types of achievements <laughs> that most like reenactment units yeah. are recreating, you know? 
I mean, I remember uh, reading a, a, a German history of a, of a unit, a unit history from the war, and they're talking about this guy who is in the troughs for the division in the supply section and how unbelievably good this guy is. I mean, he can find tires out of nowhere. You know, no, no other unit has tires. This unit has tires because this guy is so good. And it even says, like, this guy was so good, he got the War Merit Cross first class. And it was like, that was something that, meant something and was notable in, in like an infantry division at that time. Most people didn't get that. Most squads didn't have a guy with that. Most platoons, most, you know, didn't have that. That is so, interesting. Um, I suppose also the um, yeah. famous Iron Cross, uh, both in second and first class. Like if you look at the award numbers, those are, they're really, really high. Like they seem to be like super, super common, but it turns out that Almost like, I don't really remember the number exactly, but I think it's like half of them were awarded post-mortem. So, Absolutely. Although almost, yep. totally I right. would say like half of the German army would have the Iron Cross. Um, most were given out uh, post-mortem, so you don't see it too often in photos. You know, the, like the Iron Cross thing, I think it's worthy of further research. And you could, you could almost find... Um, historical documentation to suggest almost any approach to awarding the Iron Cross. You know, you can find veteran memoirs saying uh, everybody in the group got the Iron Cross and uh, they just gave it out like candy and we didn't even know yeah. what it was for. You know, or even the Iron Cross First Class. I, I've t I talked to a guy who was awarded the Iron Cross First Class, still had the award document. And I was like, what did you do to get this? He's like, I don't know that we just got it. You know, <laughs> whereas, you know, in, in other settings and other situations and other units, you're like reading about how this guy, you know, the whole the whole company was pinned down, you know, and one guy crept forward in withering fire and was able to lob a, lob a hand grenade into this machine gun nest and allowed the entire division to move forward again, you know, with incredible personal bravery. And he got the Iron Cross yeah, second exactly. class for that. So it's I, like... <laughs> I read you know one memoir I mean? of a guy walking down a road, uh, spotting enemy soldiers in the house, walking back to uh, notify his platoon about it, and he was awarded the Iron Cross first class. I've probably harped on this a million times, but there were just millions of people in the Wehrmacht and probably, I don't know, how many thousands of different units and different situations there were, and all of this stuff was different. You know, there were guys who, there were guys who, were, there were whole units that were awarded Iron Crosses en masse, and then there were other units where, you know, very few people had that award. Yeah. I'll never tell someone that they shouldn't be wearing an Iron Cross first class for the most part, right? If someone's portraying a, a combatant in the, I mean, a second class, rather. If someone's portraying a combatant in the German army and they are, you know, portraying like a field infantry type guy and they want to wear the Iron Cross second class, uh, I don't think that's totally unreasonable. Uh, we don't use it in our unit because we're yeah. like a rear area unit. You know, on the other side of the coin, personally, I, and this is my personal opinion, I just don't really see any reason for reenactors to be wearing like a close combat clasp. You know, it's not something that was so common that it needs to be there. I just, I think most, more more often than not, the close combat clasp detracts from an impression rather yeah, than adds Yeah, I think uh, close combat clasp, that's so rare, even the bronze one is so rare that it doesn't really have any, it, we don't need it in reenactment. And of course, this is an opinion, but uh, I really don't think so. 
There's a lot of fat guys out there that I wouldn't want to fight, right? I wouldn't want to have to fight these guys to the death. But when I see them wearing the close combat clasp, like fighting people to the death, it's like something that they've been engaged in recently, uh, you know, many times in recent months. I don't know. I just don't buy it, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's a um, guy from the Netherlands. No, Belgium. Yeah, Belgium. Northern Belgium. Um, and he has the Iron Cross uh, first class, uh, but he got it from his unit because he saved a spectator's life as he was choking to death or something like that. And I think, yeah, I think it's cool. cool when awards got a story behind him as well. He can say like, "Yeah, I got this because I saved the dude's life." Like, okay, you can have it. Yeah, but but in our unit, even if a guy saved another guy's life like that, I still wouldn't give him the Iron Cross first class because it just wouldn't be yeah, realistic exactly. for our unit type. But he usually portrays an officer at uh, larger events as well, so it's not out of place and a frontline one. Yeah, perfect. Very appropriate. All right, well, I guess that's pretty much it on this one. <laughs> yeah, I think we... Uh, Hopefully I haven't upset people too much. Uh, we'll probably lose a few patrons and a few listeners. <laughs> I don't know. It's a controversial subject, but I think it's uh, interesting to talk about. And, you know, I have my opinions about it. And, um, you know, look, if you uh, disagree with me, feel free to um, to start a discussion about it. And I'd be happy to, to chime in and clarify exactly what it is that I'm saying. Yeah, likewise. And... and we don't have to agree. You know, if your unit, my unit is my unit. If your unit does awards totally differently and it works for you guys and and you think that it's historically justifiable and it lines up with the research that you did, then, you know, I, I can't really fault that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, like I was saying about the Iron Cross, there are different ways to approach this. You can find historical documentation that gives you two different answers, like we talked about, I think, on the last episode. So. And maybe you reenact a unit that was awarded a lot of awards and there's photographic evidence for it as well. Yeah, here's a picture of a squad, and everyone in the squad has the Iron Cross first class. And, you know, I've got five pictures of five different squads from the same place and time, same unit, that show this. And it's like, all right, well, then that's the answer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's as simple as that. But yeah, if it, if it works for your unit, then it works for your unit. All right, guys, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the field. <laughs> see you in the field. Thanks again to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing this podcast.